welcome to the podcast. We've got fresh content from some of the brightest minds in the Bitcoin, blockchain, and crypto space. With feeds on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram that make it so incredibly easy to keep to the pulse of what's happening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and even hit the share button to send to someone you know who would love to know about this totally free podcast. Huge thanks to our main sponsor, UnoCoin, who are not only India's leading crypto assets blockchain company, but also the reason why this podcast is available to you completely free of charge. With that said, let's jump into one of the Blockchain Impact Conference talks that took place in Toronto, Canada on December 8th, 2017. So, enjoy. Um, you, you will have to excuse my part of my deep voice today. <laughs> um, so, um, as Sunny said, I've been in the tech space for many years, um, more than 20. I, I was one of the web pioneers in the 90s, I set up the website for the main newspaper in Argentina that today is one of the more uh, the most visited websites in Latin America in 1995. So I saw the first wave of uh, revolution uh, where technology was transforming or was de-intermediating our society. And the first wave of de-intermediation was the, the intermediation of access to knowledge and communications. So today we, we all, all have experience uh, in first person how the internet changed our lives. Now we can communicate with anybody anywhere in the world from, our, from the palm of our hands. We can access almost all the knowledge in our society from the same device. And in 20 years ago that was unthinkable was uh, part of a science fiction movie. And today is a reality for everybody, and four billion people in the world are using that internet, that knowledge, open knowledge uh, database. So, as we know, many industries were disrupted. The, the media industry, the entertainment industry, even how people voice their opinion have changed. But there is one thing that that internet, we all know, the internet of knowledge and communications, couldn't change. And that's the intermediation in the transfer of value, or money, if you will. And very likely when I say this, many of you might think that I go to the online banking every day, I go to eBay, I go to shop online every day. And it's true that you do that, but the truth is that when you do that, you are relying on third parties. You are relying on private networks of transfer of value to do that. You are relying on the credit cards, private networks. You are relying on the payment, online payment processors. You are relying on the international banking transfer system. So that's kind of an illusion that we are actually transferring money through the internet. And, it, and that's not something new. That's how our society finds some scaling to our social limitations. There's a guy called Dumba that he did a research on how many people we can connect with, we can interact with in a cohesive way where there's trust. And he find out that even we are the best of the primates, we can only relate with 150 people building trust. Beyond that, trust loosens, weakens. 
So that's why when we wanted to scale our society, we decided to use intermediaries. You know, people who we would delegate our trust in to actually scale our social network. So that's how we used to give our goal to Marco Polo in Venezia, and he was giving us a paper, a piece of paper signed by him, that would give us almost the same amount of gold in Pekin. That almost is important as well. So, you know, and the same goes for the political system. The representative system is no more, no less than the same social structure. We delegate our political value into a third party that will supposedly, you know, fulfill our mandate. Not, not always. So, now we know that this scaling, social scaling technology, that is delegation on trusted parties, has its failures. That's how half of our population is not accessing to the very basic financial services. I know here in Toronto it's difficult to think that half of our population, that's three billion, more than three million people, um, is not accessing to the very basic you know, financial services, and that means not having access to security, not being able to project their finance, financial planning beyond a few days. That's also what condemned them to be poor, poor forever. That's basically because the systems, these private networks, don't talk. They are fragmented. They don't talk too well with each other. There's inconsistencies. And sometimes the people we delegate our trust doesn't fulfill their duties. That's, uh, you know, in Argentina, in my country, that's something that we live in 2001 when all the banks took the money from people and they lock it out. And people, you know, that had all their money in the banks, suddenly, and, and people that was retired, suddenly didn't have access to their assets to the very assets that they were building over years of hard work. So the question is, then are we doomed to rely on trusted third parties? Is the only way we can scale our societies? If you ask me 10 years ago, I would say yes, that's how it is. You know, live with it. But the truth is that only eight years ago, something incredible happened, and a brilliant guy found out the solution to all this and created Bitcoin. And, you know, why Bitcoin is different? Why Bitcoin has a unique ability to transfer value over the internet? The main reason or the main problem that Bitcoin is solving is that information can be replicated infinitely without cost. So that was the problem that you know, was not solved before and why we couldn't have representations of value on the internet. Because every time something became digital, it can be copied and replicated over and over again. And that's what the music industry uh, you know, faced in the early 2000s and that's why they couldn't like, control their business anymore because suddenly music became 
digital. Suddenly movies became digital. So anybody could share those things that they like with their friends, family, where they wanted at zero cost. So the music industry had to change. But Bitcoin found a solution to be able to have a unique representation of value that cannot be replicated, transferred, or copied without the cost. And that's the key revolutionary element of Bitcoin. But of course, when I say this, many of you might be thinking, but wasn't Bitcoin a currency? And that's okay, because when we're seeing disruptive technologies or new things, what we do is we try to uh, associate it with things we know. And in the first element, when we don't have enough information, we don't know what we are seeing. And I usually put this picture of the Parthenon because I used to have a professor, an art professor, that was telling me, we only see what we know. And you know, if you go to the Parthenon today, it's a lot of rocks. But if you know the history, you know that was a key element of the construction of the Western world. So, you know, knowing is understanding. And of course, like we did with other technologies, like the PC, where we thought it was an amazing and very powerful typewriter, and now we know better. With Bitcoin, it's the same. We thought Bitcoin was only a currency. And of course, that is true. Oh, sorry. That is true. That I, I will skip. But even very brilliant people like Paul Krugman couldn't see the full potential of the internet back in the day and thought that the internet was going to be as powerful as the fax machine. Now we know it's a little bit better than that. But, you know. It's also true that Bitcoin is a currency, is a means of payment, and all these companies are using it. And you are using it for a single reason, because it's cheaper and more efficient. When they you know, collect money with Bitcoin, they pay zero cost. So basically for them is either using traditional payment systems and paying 3%, or using Bitcoin and paying zero cost. Um, so that's the bottom line, and most of these companies are only using Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as a means of payment. They don't store the Bitcoins, they short it, they sell them right after they receive them. But still it's a very good payment system because it has no boundaries, has no uh, you know, regional, regional limitations. But Bitcoin is much more than that. Bitcoin is a, a revolutionary system for the transfer of value, as I said, and relies on three components that by themselves are not so so much, I mean, they are not so revolutionary. Of course, you all heard of the blockchain. I imagine it's in the title of the, of the event. So uh, I will get a little bit deeper on, on what the blockchain is. And for that, I, I created this simple graph so anybody can understand what a blockchain is. Of course, this is a joke. No? But this is what you will get as a representation of a blockchain when people try to, to explain what a blockchain is. But if you look down, what a blockchain is, is no more, no less than a ledger with a simple capability where each one of the pages of that ledger is linked to the previous page. In that way, when I do a change to one page in the past, that creates a domino effect where all the subsequent pages are changed as well. That's it. It's a database 
with this specific tamper-proof system that allows us to see when somebody changed that blockchain. Bitcoin did something else that is called the proof of work and make, uh, created an economic incentive and disincentive. So every time somebody has to link to pages in the Bitcoin ledger, they have to contribute energy, they have to set up servers. So they do that beforehand. And that's where the game theory in Bitcoin appears. So what they do is they contribute value to link those pages. And if they don't fulfill the social contract of Bitcoin, the rules of Bitcoin, that page never gets added to the Bitcoin ledger. So they, they contributed the money beforehand. And if they don't behave, they lose the money. That's so simple as that. It's a game theory game. That's why Bitcoin security is not only technological, it's not only cryptography, mathematics, it's also economic incentives, making everybody stay honest. <clears throat> so, but the question is, if we have that blockchain, even if you have proof of work and you have it, you know, you have spent money, but if that blockchain is within one, one single computer, it's no more than a database. Because if I change it, you will never know what was the previous version. You will realize that it was changed, but you don't know what it was beforehand. So people start to say, okay, let's do a federated blockchain. So we put people we trust, and each one of us will have a copy. So at least, as long as two-thirds of all of us are honest, we know which one is the, the good one and who is uh, trying to skin the rest. So that's what is called a practical Byzantine fault tolerant protocol. There's no more, no less than a system where trusted parties can share ledgers, have a copy, independent copy, and, and see which one is the good one and which is the bad one. <coughs> but Bitcoin went one step further and say, I will do this. I, I will have thousands of nodes around the world that will have an independent copy. And every time a new page comes, they will validate the rules and only add that page to their version of the book if that page fulfills the rules. So suddenly what we have is one random you know, notary that creates a new page, but thousands of auditors seeing that that page is properly written and not letting it through unless it, unless it follows the rules. So that's a decentralized network, the third component of Bitcoin. And when we combine <coughs> these elements with some you know, design, purpose design options, like who is able to access this database, because you could choose to have only a few people write and read, only you know, authorized parties to write and read. You can have some people who write and some people who read. Let's say in the context of a banking system, you want only you know, the banking uh, branches to write the ledger, but you want the regulator to be able to audit. So you want a permissioned blockchain. But Bitcoin choose to be open. So it created a fully open system where anybody can write and read that blockchain, that ledger, that public ledger. And that resembles what the Internet of Knowledge and Communications did with the access of communication. What it did is democratize you know, the ability to be your own media. 
suddenly you could be your own newspaper. You could set up a blog in no time and start communicating the world wherever you want. So we are, Bitcoin is bringing the same openness for the transfer of value. The same openness for the financial system. But if we combine an open blockchain secured by, by a decentralized network, we're in the face of something completely new. A new internet, which I call the internet of value. And I say value because this internet is not only, as I said, as stated before, for money, but it's also for political power, for political value, for any kind of value that the human beings represent and transfer among us. But as the internet of knowledge and communication was built in layers, and we first you know, managed to make two computers exchange data, and then we say, okay, let's create a layer where people can communicate, so we created email. And then somebody say, but I need a protocol to exchange knowledge, so Tim Berners-Lee created the web. And after some years of using those technologies, some emerging patterns appear, like the social networks. In the same way, the internet of value will be built in layers. And the bottom layer of the internet of value is the store of value. And that's what Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is good for storing and transferring value. But it's not very good for running business logic. So what's the purpose of having a decentralized store of value if the business logic will be in a centralized server? So with the years, uh, new companies have built decentralized business logic, which we call smart contracts, like Ethereum or my company, RSK, which are building the second layer of this decentralized internet of value. But we know now that blockchains are not good for scaling. They are very expensive because you're replicating the same data in thousands of servers. You need to wait for everybody to converge uh, on, on agreement on what's the status of the network. So we also need like off-blockchain layers to really scale up transactional volume. So now we are working on off-chain systems that use the, the blockchain layers to do the settlement of the balances now and then much like the traditional financial system does as well. So if in Bitcoin we have five transactions per second, five very, 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 very extremely secure transactions per second, when we go to the business layer, we might have 100 transactions per second and up to 2,000 transactions per second. But that's not nearly enough if we want to provide service to the billions excluding our society. So we need to go up one layer, and then we can scale up to 20,000, 30,000 transactions per second and start reaching levels similar to Visa, levels similar uh, to some of the smaller payment networks in China. And as we experiment with this technology, we also realize we need more features or more functionalities. So now we are working on decentralized storage for sensitive data, because once you put data on the blockchain, it never goes away. So you need decentralized storage of data that you can control, where you can delete the data at will, where you can say, okay, I want this data replicated five times for the sake of 
resilience. So we are starting to build also services that are necessary to create a fully decentralized infrastructure and create <coughs> also services to simplify the transfer of value for the regular users, uh, like nicknames. You know, when we go to a Google, we don't type the IP address of the Google page. We just put google.com. And in the same way, when we transfer value today, we are still put, putting long strings of numbers and letters, but in the future, we will send money to the Aguito. You will simplify it. We need to simplify the process of transferring value. But going back to, to how this can be put into motion, and then to put it in, uh, in more simple to understand terms, what I will do is I will propose you a business. So the idea is that we will buy together an autonomous car, we'll paint it as a taxi, I will program a Bitcoin wallet, and every time a passenger jumps in, a payment channel will be open, and the, the user will pay by the second. And when the, the user goes down, the payment channel will close. When the car feels that it's running out of gas, will go to the gas station, refill, and pay from its own wallet. If it breaks, it will call the mechanic. When the self-diagnosis system say, you're okay, the car will pay the mechanic. And, you know, in the back of your mind, everybody's thinking, taxes. Yeah, don't worry. Once a month, it will pay taxes. So, it will send all the information to the accountant, so taxes are paid and everything is good, because this is a very good citizen responsible citizen. Everything I describe in this moment can be done today. There's no science fiction in it. Of course, I don't know how many of you will dare to jump in that taxi, autonomous taxi. I maybe take it a, a, for a drive, but you know, it's stop. So the, the limit is more cultural. And one thing that is an interesting reflection is that when you think about our society, our society has a programming language. The law is a programming language of our society. And the legal contracts are the programs. So the lawyers are the hackers. So more respect with your lawyers from now on. So basically, what we are doing with the smart contracts is replicating that on a decentralized network run by computers. So the legal system are those decentralized computers that are fulfilling each contract line by line as, is, as expected. So now we have a legal system we can actually trust because nobody, the, the computers in this network don't have any saying in what, what's going on on the contract. They will just follow the rules. They will say, okay, you know, if this happens, this has to happen. If this happens, the money has to go there. Of course, this is not about replacing the human beings at all because there are still disputes, there are still moments where computers cannot make a decision, so we'll still need, you know, the subjective, you know, will or decision of the human beings. So, but this, what this does is make very efficient the standard processes. So if everything goes well, if the transaction goes well, there's no involvement of human beings. If we have a problem, we need to call an arbiter and ask them for, to, to solve the dispute. But this is a big improvement in the social scaling I was mentioning before. And as I mentioned, <clears throat> I'm 
my colleagues at the last minute, so I'm wrapping up. As I mentioned, in the Internet of Knowledge and Communications, we had emergent patterns. And one of the most interesting emergent patterns for the Internet of Value is the creation of reputations based on identity. So now a farmer in Honduras can re register its identity on the blockchain, on a decentralized network, and every time he transacts with other people, will get a reputation. Every time he learns a new trade, he will earn some reputation. Every time he contributes to the local community, will get some more reputation. And that reputation will become his collateral. So with that reputation, with that ID base on reputation, he will be able to trade with people that don't know him. So he will be able to ask for a loan from a development bank in China if he pays back. Another development bank, maybe Brazil, will be able to pay to give him a loan as well. So we are solving one of the key problems of the exclusion in our society, that is that the poorest people in the world don't have a collateral. And by not having a collateral, they cannot be, they are invisible to our society. So reputation based on identity is one of the key elements to solve poverty and exclusion. And finally, <clears throat> and this is mostly why I've been building RSK and, and all my efforts in Latin America for the last five years, if we combine this with ha something that is happening today, that is half of that excluded population will have a smartphone in their hands, we are in the face for first time in the human history to actually create a financial system that will provide the basic services, that will provide an identity, a collateral to those included in our society. So, thank you. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with a friend you think would appreciate the send. Up next, more talks from past conferences. Thanks for listening.